I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Welcome to LiveWire, everybody. My name is Luke Burbank. I'm your host. How's your week going? Uh, Let me tell you, however it's been going, this next hour is going to be a high point. How do I know? I just do. Because we have got a great radio show in store for you. Our theme is Choice Words, which our guests, including Salman Rushdie, who, by the way, is so much jokier than I expected him to be. Our guests this week are amazing at choosing just the right word in the moment. Now, choice words, that term, that usually means that you are trying to pick the right words to let somebody know how disappointed or ticked off you are at them. Uh, But then there are the other times where we just actually choose the wrong words and we unintentionally really hurt someone's feelings. This is a lesson that I learned recently when I had my feelings really hurt by my wife. Let's pick things up at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. The words that we use are so important, and I have to say, I'm very sensitive about the word choice that people make when they're talking to me. Ask any member of the Livewire staff. It takes very little to completely hurt my feelings, and my wife will concur with that. It's a weird pairing because I'm very sensitive, and she is very direct. Like, you could say very blunt. This summer, she went on a trip, and I dropped her off at the airport, and I drove directly to, um, if somebody said strip club, I will come down off this stage right now. (laughs) It was a casino. No, it wasn't. It was one of these new haircut places that exist. I think it's called like super jock hair place or something. The theory seems to be that Mostly guys, I guess, want to get their hair cut in a place that feels like a sad, tiny stadium in a strip mall. You go in, it has actual, like, basketball hardwood floors. You sit on bleachers while you're waiting to go, I guess, sub into the game of haircut. The women who cut your hair at this place, they have them for reasons I don't understand. Their shirt is a referee's shirt. Because if you know one thing about sports fans, it's that they love referees. 
it's pretty much their favorite person on the field. So I sit down in the chair at Hair Nightmare or whatever it's called. The referee comes over to cut my hair and I, I said, shave it all off. And the reason for this was because I've talked about this a lot on the show, but I'm 41 years old. Uh, my hair is starting to thin out on top. I know at some point I need to cut it short, okay? That's just going to be part of my life. I wanted to get a little preview of what it was going to look like because it was the summertime. We had a little break here at Livewire, and my thought was, if it looks ridiculous, I'll have a little bit of time to grow it out. So I head home, and I look in the mirror, and something surprising happens for me, a person of generally low self-esteem. I liked how it looked. I was like, yeah, it's kind of streamlined. No muss, no fuss. I was like, also, it was pretty clear that my hair is getting thin on top, but it was kind of like liberating. Like, hey, world, this is my hair. Deal with it, right? So for like two or three days, I am living my best Luke. I am just like confident, going out in the world. I'm just, it's great. And then my wife comes home from her trip. And she takes one look at me and she says, you look exactly like Marlon Brando. <laughs> now, coming from my wife, there is not a higher compliment that can be paid to a human being on this planet than you look like Marlon Brando. She's obsessed with Marlon Brando. She has watched all of his films. She has read his autobiography. Sometimes I will find her late at night, a couple of glasses of wine in, watching on YouTube old Dick Cavett interviews with Marlon Brando. <laughs> this is where we're at with this. And when she said that, I knew what it meant and my heart leapt. The problem was, that wasn't the end of the sentence. <laughs> she said, you look like Marlon Brando. And I said, I'll take it. And she said, in the movie Apocalypse Now. which for the younger listeners is the one where Marlon Brando is 300 pounds and shaves his head and didn't know his lines. I guess my point here for everybody at the Alberta Rose Theater, even for the people listening on the radio, one of them possibly named Carrie Burbank. Words matter. Word choices matter. So let's think about that as we get going with the show. All right, our theme this hour on Livewire is choice words. A recent online review had some choice words for the kid TV show Danger and Eggs creator, who is our next guest. They said the show uh, is an acid trip worth taking. Raising the question, is there any other kind? They're going to cut that out, don't worry. This show, Danger and Eggs, is hilarious and groundbreaking for reasons we're going to hear about in a moment. To fill us in on all things Danger and Eggs, please welcome Shaddy Petoskey to Livewire. Well, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. For those who have not seen Danger and Eggs, can you explain the premise no. 
So in the in the theme song, we say it's a kid, an egg, a park. They do stuff. And I believe there's actually the line in the opening theme. It's hard to explain. It's kind of hard to explain. It's a daredevilly, uh, teal-haired girl and her friend, a giant talking egg, who's um, anxious and obsessed with safety. And together, they're a wonderful team. But it's really about anxiety and bad parenting. <laughs> now, a lot of that. There seems to be all kinds of bad, well, questionable parenting happening because danger. Her her dad is like a stunt man mm-hmm. who has been injured so gravely through his stunts that he's like in a body cast and can't really talk. But yeah, so he's, he's trying to say something. <laughs> yeah, he mumbles. And then eggs, Philip. Phillips. Philip is as an egg, most like often hanging out inside his mother, like physically half he, he inside lives in his the mother. But of a giant chicken. Yeah, that's true. I am amazed that you got someone to buy this pitch. Yeah. <laughs> it's Hollywood. They're looking for new voices. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll say I really enjoyed the show. It, it's described as a kid's show. And so when I, when I started watching and I thought, okay, I need to do some research and watch this. But I found myself really cracking up. Like it's... It is a show, I think, that if you're a parent and you have a kid and you have to watch a kid's show, this is one you'll actually enjoy, too. When you guys set out to make it, was that part of your creative process? Because yeah. there are other kid shows. For instance, there are promos for other shows before yours that are just like a weird claymation dog going, dirt, 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 watch Dog Times on Amazon. Your show is like... That actually- show won four Emmy Awards. <laughs> <laughs> the, one, the one that you're talking about. But yeah, I think we worked on a show called Yo Gabba Gabba, and it was kind of... A show called Yo Gabba yeah, Gabba, a that's very, a cultural it was phenomenon. It a hot, hip, hit show, one person's yelling, everyone else is older. Um, the show uh, was kind of a reaction to Dora the Explorer, and the creators of that show could not watch Dora the Explorer, so they created another show on the same network as Dora the Explorer that they liked. And like, we were really inspired by shows like Rocky and Bullwinkle, where you know comedy works on a couple levels. Also, I don't really want to work on a kid's show, so I kind of wanted to write jokes that I thought were funny. Um, where did the very original concepts for these characters come from? Uh, the, the concept of Philip, the anxious safety, it came from my partner, Mike Owens, whose mom was a nurse. So he grew up being afraid of everything uh, and so he wanted to deal, do something with anxiety, and it was sort of this countertop-sized egg. And we initially did it as in a film festival movie, and then we decided to turn it into a kid show, and we added Dee Dee as sort of like a foil. And a reason did for you him decide to, to turn it into a kid show because you thought that somebody would be more um, likely to pick it up because it is animated, um, or did you do that because you thought we can actually make a really interesting, watchable, fun kid show? I think it was the first one, which isn't as artistic. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the adult animation world wasn't great. And Cartoon Network was, had seen the, the short and they were interested in it. So we kind of went where the money is. <laughs> Do you have kids? Yes. Do you have a kid in mind when you're putting the show together, when you're I trying think... to decide what jokes should be and shouldn't be in there, et cetera? No, I think I'm doing it for myself. I mean, my kids are definitely like... Kids have had it too good. <laughs> yeah. Their time is over. What it, they don't know very much. <laughs> so 
Please tell why? me they're not like 20. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the other market for uh, kids' animation is the stoners. Right. They uh, are very much like Philip and Didi in that my son, who's older, is incredibly anxious. And then um, my daughter is, uh, you know, just runs around and, is, and is, uh, she says, I'm not afraid of anything. So they're, they're a little bit of a model, but no, I don't, I don't ask them anything. Okay. <laughs> this is Livewire from PRI. We're talking to Shadi Potosky, co-creator of the Amazon cartoon series Danger and Eggs. We have much more coming up. Do not go anywhere. We're going to take a short break. Livewire is brought to you by Fully. Hey, have you noticed that scientists have determined that pretty much every single thing we did in the 1950s that was considered normal and healthy was actually making us sick and killing us? Cigarettes, BB guns, cars without seatbelts, TV dinners. Don't even get me into lawn darts. The history of us becoming healthy is pretty much dismantling all of this stuff that we used to think. And the latest thing that they're dismantling scientifically is the typical office desk and the typical chair and the typical way of sitting there for 8 to 10 to 12 hours a day, five days a week, doing yourself zero favors. That is where Fully comes in. Fully makes all kinds of amazing stuff that helps you stay productive but also stay in motion. For instance, when I'm doing live wire on stage at the Alberta Rose Theater, I am sitting and standing behind a Jarvis sit-stand desk. It is an amazing piece of equipment. It's handsome looking, but it's also really functional. I can adjust it to any height that I need. Then if I do want to sit down for a minute, I've got a Capisco stool that they also make that I can uh, position myself on, which will help me rest, but also stay engaged with my core and keep the blood pumping. It is just amazing what Fully is doing. They've outfitted our live wire offices, and we want you to find out more about what they are doing. They're a great Portland company and a great supporter of Livewire. If you want to find out more about what Fully's been doing, go over to fully.com slash livewire for more info. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater here in Portland, Oregon. Our theme this week is choice words. We have Shadi Potosky here, the showrunner and creator of the great cartoon series on Amazon called Danger and Eggs. It's about a, a, a brave, daredevilish young woman and her friend who's a very anxiety-ridden egg mm-hmm. who has to clean up all of the messes that she creates, basically, through her, her daredevil ways. Yep. Um, the show is, is really funny, but it's also notable. It's been described as the gayest show ever. Who said that? Um, somebody on the internet? Yeah, that's true. I don't think it was a troll. I think they meant it as a compliment. No, they're, they're right. Uh, yeah, there's, um, you know, I'm a trans person, and animation is a very straight, white, do, you know, your people. Right. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> so that's kind of the world, and, and so we tried to hire a much more diverse crew. And we, we, when we were writing it, we were thinking, I didn't want to think about my actual terrible childhood and take things from that. So it was like, we called it uh, speculative fiction. We wrote it like, what do we want the world to feel like? So we tried to write a very diverse show and it has trans kids and queer kids and, and uh, we do a pride episode, which has never been done before. And that was, you know, part of what was so great about being on Amazon. But yeah, that's why um, that person called it the gayest show ever. There was a great episode where they go to a Renaissance fair 
And the dude running the Renaissance Fair, I think it's like been in his family for a while or something. Yeah. And he wants to run it like traditional. And at some point, mm -hmm. somebody has to say to him, that might have worked a long time ago, but that's not working right now. That yeah. felt like a conversation about a lot of current issues. Uh, thanks for picking up on it. <laughs> yeah. We had the line, make Ren Fair great again, uh, <laughs> that made it through like 20 phases and only oh. got caught at the very end. And then so we changed the line to make Ren Fair how I like it, like I like it. Yeah. So it's about that sort of like, this worked for you and your bros, but it doesn't work for everyone. Are you trying to, when you're, when you're putting these episodes together, do it with a light enough touch that it doesn't feel overt? Like, that's a subtle way to talk about yeah, we're trying patriarchy to and a bunch of other things. Yeah, we're trying to softly and gently destroy the patriarchy. <laughs> like, like, just... Just cuddle you know, it to death? Just, like, tip it over with a gentle kiss. How do you think it's going? It's real big. Still. Yeah. Yeah. It's real heavy. I um, don't think we made a dent. Really? Yeah. What about this, though? What about some kids who are clicking around on the computer or yep. whatever media device they use, and they watch Danger and Eggs, and they watch that Pride episode, and some little part of their brain connects up with an idea? I mean, that's really powerful, even if it's in one kid's life. I wanted to downplay how much I'm changing the world, but yeah, you put your finger on it. <laughs> I... Children see representation, and they get to see a whole life represented that we never got to see. So that's cool, I guess. Yeah. That is Shadi Petoskey right there, the showrunner and creator of the cartoon series Danger and Eggs, right here on Livewire. All right, Shaddy, our theme this week is choice words, okay? Which is usually meant to mean when you're really letting somebody have it. Mm -hmm. Of course, because your show, Danger and Eggs, it's aimed at kids. You need to be creative in the choice words that you use. Like, they can't be overtly bad words. Right. They'll be offensive. So, mm -hmm. we want to try to help you out of this uh, sticky problem. We went back and we found some old-timey insults that are definitely choice <laughs> words but you can use them on your show because nobody remembers what they mean anymore. So I'm yeah. gonna list some of these for you. You have to try to guess their meaning. It's a quiz we're calling Cussing for Kids. Oh, nice. If your friend Larry is acting like a real sting bum, what's he doing? If Larry, well, we all know how Larry is. Yeah. Classic Larry. Um, I think he's being, uh, he's being stingy with money. <gasps> oh, my. Really? That is absolutely 100% oh right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Holy cow. Here's, here's, here's the thing. All old-timey swear words were <laughs> about being For stingy. stingy. <laughs> yeah. And possibly anti-Semitic. And very anti-Semitic. Okay. Next one. You've probably met somebody in your career, Shaddy, who could be called... An afternoon farmer. What does that insult mean? Oh, wow. Uh, a couch potato. You yeah. know what? I'm going to allow it. Okay, yay. It's somebody who is lazy and behind in their chores. Yeah. They are an afternoon farmer. 
You get, you've got two right. This nice. is amazing. This is going better than I expected. All right, Shaddy. Yes. You might want to break up with someone if they were rumbumptious. What is rumbumptious? Uh, I would break up with somebody if they were transphobic. <laughs> Who'd be great if, like, the 1920s, they just had a word yeah, for being Yeah, rumbumptious. That one I have to give Dressing you. Dressing up that way. <laughs> oh, that wasn't right. They're pompous or haughty. But by the way, a lot of people could be rumbumptious and also transphobic. All right. If you had a neighbor who was a smell feast, yep. that would be a an, an very annoying neighbor to have. Mm-hmm. What would they be doing? Um, I think it would be a white cis heterosexual male who's telling everyone else how to mow their lawn. Uh, and that would be diagonally. <laughs> Even though it's an urban area and it doesn't matter. I feel like you're giving very woke answers for words that were invented in the 1920s. Well, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> A smell feast is somebody that comes over to your house if they smell food cooking and tries to pop a squat and have some, have some dinner with you. All right, one more. What kind of person would be a snout band? Ooh, wow. They're, uh, they're, they're uh, arrogant. And you are 100% right, yeah. Shaddy. Nice. It is somebody who constantly interrupts to correct or contradict someone else, a.k.a. mansplainer. Although snout band <laughs> is somehow better, I think. I'm not sure. Snout band, that's great. I'm going to use it. Well, you did an amazing job. Shaddy right, Potosky. The new show is Danger and Eggs. It's on Amazon. Go check it out right now. We are coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland this week, and our theme is Choice Words. We asked the audience here uh, to fill out a little survey. What's the meanest thing anyone's ever said to you. And I just want to start by saying, we have never seen so many answers that started with, my mother said. (laughs) 90% of the answers were things that your mothers said to you here at the theater. Uh, What's the meanest thing anyone's ever said to you? Nate says, you have big ears like Dumbo as a kid, only to have surgery and then they did not grow, so now I get teased for having small ears. (laughs) David says, the meanest thing anyone's ever said to him, my mom said, you know, being your mom is not the most interesting thing in my life. (laughs) Maybe top three. (laughs) The meanest thing anyone ever said to Janice, Janice says, I was asked if I was my wife's mother while we were in the ER. That's making a bad time worse, Janice. I hope you guys made it through that okay. Um, Tori says the meanest thing anyone's ever said to them. Somebody said, this is the worst meal I've ever eaten. It was said by an 80-year-old person, and Tori is a chef. (laughs) So those are just some of the mean things that have been said to our actual studio audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater. Stand-up comedy is all about finding not just choice words, but the right rhythm and the right delivery of those words to make the audience laugh, also to get them to think about things in a different way. 
That is something our next performer really excels at. He's one of Comedy Central's 2017 comics to watch. He's written for The Onion, and he made maybe the greatest TV pilot ever about bringing way too many tortilla chips to a party. Please welcome the very funny Joe Quazala to Livewire. All right. Okay, guys. Thank you so much for coming out here to see me, specifically. <laughs> a little bit about me. I was raised Catholic. Went to Catholic Mass every Sunday of my childhood. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a Catholic Mass before. If you haven't, I would uh, summarize it as mostly a priest trying to sing. Giving it a go, really trying his hand at it. And every Catholic priest kind of sings like this. Just kind of finds a note and sticks with it. Not a ton of wavering. They kind of sing like they're leading up to something. Like maybe they're gonna get to something and then they just kind of do. You start to think, well, there's a lot of people who go to church every Sunday. Maybe this is going to lead to something good. So you just kind of strap in with the rest of everybody. Just kind of go up that roller coaster hill, click by click. Maybe we'll get to the top of the mountain. There'll be some sort of payoff for all this. So you wait and wait, and then the priest finally gets to what he's doing. You're at the top. You're going to see if there's some sort of reward for all this. And then you're at the top, and the priest does what you've all been waiting for, and he pulls it out of his back pocket, and it's just this. Which, that's not okay. How dare you, you know? And they all do it. Every Catholic priest sings like that. It makes no sense. The only time it like ever made sense to me was when I was like a little kid. Because I only ever went to the one church. I only ever saw the one priest. If you just see one dude doing that, you can make sense of it. But they all, they all do it. it. It's like they had been explained the concept of singing but had never heard a song. <laughs> Got all the priests together, and they're like, all right, here's what singing is. You, you're going to love it. It's, it's like talking, which you know, but you're going to sustain notes with the words. Here, I'll give you an example. No, I think I got it. Based on your definition, I think I'm nailing it. so weird. It's not okay. I, maybe, for me, I think maybe the weirdest part about the Catholic Mass is the way they handle the wine. And I think they use the singing to hide how weird the wine is. Because they're always like, everybody drink out of the same goblet. Everybody put your lips and tongue on the exact same spot on the goblet. Totally hygienic. I swear it's totally hygienic because I'm going to Wipe it down with the exact same cloth every time. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Got a real long cloth. Just going to use the one corner. Just re really going to go to town with that corner. 
totally not gross to be sharing this goblet with everybody else in the church, even though if you kind of take stock of everybody who's in the church, they're kind of ugly in a way where they look like a bad drawing. Yeah, my parents are not proud of me. <laughs> they, wanted a, they wanted a good Catholic boy, you know, and they got a bad boy. <laughs> no, I, I want to, I do, I do want to be a bad boy, I guess, a little bit. Like, sometimes I'll, I'll do that when I'm flirting with a girl. I'll call myself a bad boy. I think it's kind of cute, kind of funny. Except once I was trying to do that, and I tripped over my words, and instead of saying I was a bad boy, I said it was a bad guy which is not quite the same, <laughs> you know? I feel like bad boy is like, yo, what's up, girl? I got a motorcycle. And bad guy is, yo, what's up, girl? I watched a man drown. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. My name is Joe Quazala. Have a good night. Joe Quazala. This week's show is brought to you by Alaska Airlines, an airline that doesn't just fly lumberjacks to glaciers. No, with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, and Costa Rica, Alaska Airlines flies all kinds of folks to all kinds of places, including nonstops from multiple cities on the West Coast to places like Honolulu and New York. And if you are a lumberjack who needs to get to a glacier, they got you covered there, too. Book now at alaskaair.com. This is Livewire from PRI. My name is Luke Burbank. Our theme this week is choice words. Our next guest could be introduced by any number of wildly impressive words. He's a best-selling author. He won multiple Man Booker Awards. He wrote a song with Bono from U2. He's a real-life knight. So I guess if we had to choose just one word to introduce him, it would probably be, holy crap, this guy is a legend. We can't believe he's doing this. Don't mess this, don't mess this up, Luke. I already did. Can only, can only go up from here, everybody. His latest book is The Golden House. Please welcome the inimitable Salman Rushdie to Livewire. That's a good word. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's fun. I loved this book, by Thank the way. You. I was absolutely riveted. I'm wondering, when did you start writing it? Well, you know, it's one part of the book, obviously, is incredibly contemporary. You know, I mean, it, I really wanted to do this thing you're told not to do, which is, you know, to write a book which is about the moment in which the book is being written. You know, and you're supposed to not do that, but I have a habit of doing things I'm not supposed to do. <laughs> um, but the other part of the book, which is actually the story of the book about this crazy family from, as it turns out, India, who are very wealthy, but they clearly have quite a shady past and they've tried to erase that. You know, they come to America, they've, they've changed their names, they won't admit where they're from, they'll tell no, nobody anything 
about where they're from. Them, I've had in my head for maybe 10 years. The Goldens. The, yeah, the Golden family. You know, the, the, I didn't know, I, 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 for a long time, I didn't know where the story would be. And then I had this idea of writing this very contemporary New York story, and I, it just struck me that they're the, two, the, the, they're the same story, because that would be a natural place for people to come to reinvent themselves, you know? So one part of the story is, has been rattling around in my brain for a decade, and the other part is from the day before yesterday. You know. And it really is. I mean, the, the particularly contemporary part of the book is a guy with a super unnatural hair color who runs for president and yeah. literally says, I could go shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose a vote. Yeah. Is that based on anyone? <laughs> I'm not good with metaphors. No, it's, 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 it's completely fictional. <laughs> his, his, his hair is green. Yes, you know? this character's uh, hair is in fact green. Green, because so. he's the Joker. <laughs> were you I'm not trying to get too bogged down in the timeline of your creation of this book but I yeah. guess I'm wondering were you were you actually sitting down and writing about the Goldens and all of their adventures and then the political <laughs> yeah. things that unfolded started happening and you were like this has to be part of the book there has well, to be a Trump-esque character well, you know in a way the, the whole book is written that part, you know, the social background of the book is really written to try and react to what's going on. It takes place over the course of eight or nine years, like from the beginning of the Obama administration to, to sort of now. And yeah, there were things that happened, Occupy Wall Street, you know, things like that happened which find their way into the book. And then, yes, this, this, um, this well-known real estate developer got ideas above his station. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, I can't ignore this. I can't agree, especially since I'd met him a couple of times. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> what was that like? Well, shall I tell you? <laughs> well, the, it's, you won't believe it. The first time I met him was like year 2000 at Madison Square Garden at a Crosby, Stills and Nash concert. <laughs> By the way, if I walk into a Crosby, Stills, and Nash concert and Salman Rushdie and Donald Trump are talking, my head explodes. It's, yeah. That's the end of my life. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just him. He was there with, well, of course, this is 17 years ago, so everybody was much younger. He, he was there with his two, you know, disgusting sons. <laughs> and anyway, there they were, and he was on his feet, and he knew the words to the songs. That was what baffled me. Donald Trump knew the words to Woodstock. I do not see yeah. him as a Crosby, Stills, and Nash no, guy. No, And, you know, I thought this is just a chance encounter. We happen to have seats near each other. But I think he thought we had totally bonded at, at Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Because then, when I met him again, he behaved like I was his best friend. He remembered you being in the same part of Madison yeah, Square Garden? Yeah, and I ran into him um, at the, the, sort of this time of year when the tennis, the U.S. Tennis Open was happening, and... and he very kindly offered me, he said, was I interested in tennis? And I said, yeah. And he very kindly offered me seats in his box anytime I wanted them. Except, of course, because it's Donald Trump, uh, his, he had to explain that his box was the best box. <laughs> you actually, you have some theories in your book for why the people might vote for the Joker. Do you have theories about why people supported Donald Trump? You know, I think it was kind of a perfect storm. I think, I think on the one hand, I don't think Hillary was a great candidate. I think the Democrats ran a terrible campaign. Um, you know, they dropped the ball all over the place. And at the same time, 
this unique figure who somehow had the ability to say things which would end anybody else's presidential campaign in five seconds, and somehow they didn't, didn't affect him. And people came to see him as this, I mean, I was a, a taxi in New York with an Indian taxi driver who told me he was going to vote for Trump. Because he said, you know, Mr. Trump, straight shooter, <laughs> says what he thinks, doesn't give a, can't use the word. Um, and I thought, oh my God, he's going to win. That was the moment you, you yeah. thought the, the polls were wrong and the conventional wisdom was probably wrong. Yeah, I thought, I really thought he's going to win because oddly he seems like the honest one. Uh, one of the things I noticed about your latest book is that it is just peppered with quotes from other writers. And I, I've noted you doing this in interviews as well, where a lot of times it seems that when you want to describe something, you'll say, so-and-so said this. And it could, it's such a wide range. It could be Plato. It could be Patti Smith. Yeah. Do you memorize these quotes when you're reading them? Do you have some notation system? How do you remember so many things that other people wrote? This is just the garbage in my head. I'm sorry. You know, this is... <laughs> There's just By the way, great title for your next book, The Garbage the in My Head yes. by Salman Rushdie. Yes, a memoir. A memoir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, and it's, I mean, in the, the case of this book, because the narrator, the young man who narrates the novel, uh, the story of this, this weird family, is actually a young filmmaker, it allows me to put in lots of movie stuff, you know, that I've been, I've been a movie fan all my life and I finally found a way of using it. So, you know, there's bits where, it, where he compares what's going on to, to like Rear Window, you know, right. or, or to The Godfather or whatever. Right. There are references to so many things that are, that are so current, Gamergate mm. and transgender issues. And I mean, it is very, very set in the present. Did you know about things like Gamergate yeah, or I did other stuff? Bit. Or did you have to research that? Well, both, both. I knew a little about it and then I found out a whole lot more about it. And I mean, and the other stuff, I mean, there's one of the, the, the three sons of, of, the old, of the old bastard Nero, the patriarch. Yeah. They all have different kinds of agony, you know, and, and the youngest is somebody who is uh, very, very agonized about whether or not he wants to, he wants to transition. And I wanted to get into it because I've, I mean, I've known a couple of friends who have rather quite successfully transitioned, like one in each direction, in fact, and who are in both cases much happier people now than they were before. So I have some experience of the success of it, you know, but in the case of the character in the book, it's a kind of torment which, which he's trying to resolve and, and really doesn't, and that's his tragedy. Um, but I wanted to get into it because it's, as I say, the book is trying to be about what's in the air at the moment, what are people talking about, what are people thinking about, and that's clearly, that's clearly one of the issues that is around. Also, you know, if you grow up as I did in India, in Bombay, which I still call it, not Mumbai, there's quite a significant transgender community there, the so-called Hijra community. And I've spent some time with them and writing about them nonfiction. And, and so I had, I had some knowledge from that end, you know, from India, and then some from over here, and I just tried to use both ends. What is your relationship with Twitter? I had seen that It's you... over. We're divorced. Well, yeah. I mean, really. Yeah. I know you talk about quitting it. Are you really off Twitter? Yeah, I'm off. I, the last day that I tweeted anything was election day. Are you going to yeah. come back on when the political winds blow differently? No, no. You know, I mean, I had actually, I, I started off because a friend of mine said, you should try this, you might enjoy it. And so I tried it and I did enjoy it, you know, and I, I had fun. There's a point at which I invented a limerick, which I've mercifully forgotten. 
It said something like the marriage of poor Kim Kardashian got crushed like a car in a crash in. <laughs> so this was I, I, maybe it's good you quit Twitter. Yeah, I feel like that may that may be besmirching the the rusty brand. Well, it was just having fun, you know. But there was there was a point at which I stopped having fun, and I I don't know whether it's I changed or Twitter changed, but I felt that it became nastier as as an environment, you know. And and I just thought I did I don't need this noise in my head, and I stopped. I know that you are busy doing all kinds of things in your life, but I'm curious about your writing process when you're in a period of time where you are just writing a book. Mm. What does a typical day look like for you? I'm just, I'm just a crazy person. I mean, I'm obsessed. I wake up in the morning and I work until I drop and then I sleep and then I wake up and I work until I drop. It's not, not much fun to live with. So that's your process. Yeah. You start, you start straight away in the morning. Do you have yeah. a cup of coffee see, or I, something, some yes, tea? Uh, yeah, I mean, I have this... I have this theory that you wake up every day with a little bundle of creative energy for that day. And you can use it or you can squander it, you know? And my view is do that first. Go straight from the bed to the desk, start work. So that's what you do, and then when you're really in a productive mode, you go until the evening and then you basically collapse? Yeah, 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 it's, it's crazy. You know, but the thing about books is that they're very, very long. <laughs> I've noticed. And, and so you, you, can't, you can't write them in a short burst. You, know, you can write a screenplay in a short burst. Sometimes it's better if you do. You know? But a book, you have, to just, you have to be the marathon runner. You have to chip away at it. For a long time, you can't even see the end. You can't even think about the end. You're just thinking about getting to the bottom of the page. How do you know if it's going well on a particular day? Ernest Hemingway said that every writer should have an excellent detector. You know? And he said, because what he said, and he said this in the Paris Review, so it's very highbrow. Um, <laughs> and what he meant was that if you don't know when it's bad, you don't know when it's good. You know, so, so, so Do you, you have ever to... write all day and then you're like, that was bad? Yes. Yes. Yes, and then I'm in a really good mood. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> We're going to take a very short break. This is Livewire from PRI. We're talking to Salman Rushdie, author of many books, Midnight's Children, Satanic Verses. Most recently, The Golden House. We will be back with more with Salman Rushdie in just a moment. Hey, this week on the podcast, we'd like to send a special thanks to a couple of our members. Of course, I'm talking about Christine Collier-Hayes of Portland, Oregon, and Anna Anafi of Seattle, Washington. Support from wonderful people like Christine and Anna is a huge part of making Livewire a reality. So thank you once again, Christine and Anna for helping us keep this thing going. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We're in Portland at the Alberta Rose Theater. Our theme this week is choice words. We're here with Sir Salman Rushdie. Was I supposed to be calling you Sir the whole time? No, Am no, I messing no. this up? No, no, no. I'm, I'm very democratic about these things. No, I mean, I had, I had this friend with a young, like, eight-year-old daughter who got very excited when she heard about the knighthood and... And then she saw me, like, after I'd been to see the Queen, and, and I looked exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> and she was... She thought you were going to ride in on a white yeah, horse she was disappointed, and she was trying to find a way of expressing her disappointment. And she said, so, someone, how's this whole night thing going? <laughs> Which are, where's, you know, where's Excalibur, dude, you know? Yeah, do they give you any kind of sword to <laughs> no, take home? No, 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 the, the Queen hits you with the sword. 
What do you say to the queen in that sort of situation? Well, the rule is, and you're told this beforehand, that she has to talk first. You can't volunteer looking cute, queen. You can't, you can't, you can't. You can't. Yeah, she, was that going to be your opener if they didn't make that rule? I was thinking about it. But no, she did, she did, what she said to me was, after the sword, uh, she said, so, are you still writing books? <laughs> and then she was completely not interested in the answer. Um, <laughs> and as it happened, a couple of years later, uh, somebody else I knew had to go and go through the same process. And, and so I asked, what did the queen say to you? And, and they said, she said, so, are you still writing books? <laughs> <laughs> and that was Mick Jagger, right? <laughs> So this appears, hip. this appears to be her question for writers. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind, I wanted to ask you uh, about one thing because I was curious about it when I told people I was going to get a chance to speak to you. People brought it up a lot. Mm. A very well-known event from your life and from your professional career was when you wrote the Satanic Verses and uh, there was a fatwa put out on your life, which was basically uh, an ayatollah in Iran telling anybody who followed him that they should try to kill you mm. if they got the chance. The nation of Iran rescinded that at some point, um, but I read that it's still technically in effect. Does that have any impact on your life on a day-to-day -day no, basis? not really. I mean, it hasn't. It, it really, there was a, a deal between the Iranian government and the Brits at the United Nations like 20-odd years ago, and it really went away. And I just point out to you that the, uh, the Ayatollah you're talking about is Khomeini, and I just say that one of us is dead. <laughs> <laughs> So you don't have, you, you don't live with, with any fear over that issue at this point? No, except that it keeps coming up, I'm afraid of People that. People keep asking you People about it. Asking Basically, about every interview you do is a jinx. Yeah, right? exactly. I don't, except when I'm talking to journalists, it never comes up. Really? Yeah. All right. Well, we had to get it out of the way. No, I'm wondering, what are you most proud of from your career thus far? Is it an award? Is it... Um, a class you taught? <laughs> no, you know, prizes are nice, but they're not the point, you know? I mean, the thing that, one of the things that I'm proud of is that, is, book, is that the books endure, you know? I mean, like Midnight's Children, for example, is now 36 years old, and there are young readers who weren't born when the book came out who still like it, and I think I'm proud of that, that it moves across the generations, because that's what you hope to do, you know? Um, there's a line in, in the book that I'm paraphrasing, so I may get it slightly wrong, but it's something to the effect of, Shakespeare didn't know he was Shakespeare. It's a question, Do did you he? know that you're Salman Rushdie? <laughs> Whatever that is. <laughs> right, but that's the question. Does, it fe does being Salman Rushdie feel the way that well, we think it would feel? Well, no. No, it's too... It's, I mean, writing is too difficult, you know? I mean, most of the time that you're writing, you feel stupid. And I mean, I have this, this theory that you start at the stupid end of the book, you know, and then you bash your head's brains out for years, and you, if you're lucky, you end up at the smart end of the book, and then everybody thinks you're smart. But actually, for 99% of that time, you've been stupid. So, so that's what it feels like. It feels like trying to get past your own stupidity to find the book. 
And you say stupidity because you'll go back and you'll reread because the pages. You yeah, you don't like it, and it's not it's not doing what you want it to do. It doesn't feel the way, you know. It's it's wrong until it's right, and so it's wrong most of the time. You've described every moment I'm hosting this show. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know. I believe you because all forms of trying to make something happen and make it good, it's until you make it good, it's bad. To read one of your books is to really kind of get a view into how much information, or as you call it, garbage, mm. is in your brain. Is there some sort of pop culture that you consume that people might be very surprised to hear Salman Rushdie enjoys, be it music, film, sports? Well, I mean, I think probably the thing most is, is, is movies. I mean, I have been a kind of movie nut since I was a kid. If you, again, if you grow up in Bombay, it's such a colossal movie city everybody's obsessed with the cinema. And so you, you can't avoid it. So, I, I, so I, I'm, not, and I'm not particularly just exclusively highbrow about the Are movies. there any conventionally bad movies? Like, are you into the movie Snow Dogs? Um, I, I, have to, I have to say that that one maybe passed me by. All right. You know, what I, is I, a movie that you like that, that people might be surprised? Well, I, like, I really, this year, I really like Wonder Woman. I think it's kind of the best movie I saw. You know, so, uh, I, Okay, but everybody loved that movie, and also yeah. it's great that finally they're making I movies like, like that. Is there yeah. something else? I like Get Out. <laughs> You're naming objectively quality films. Yeah. I want to hear but some I don't like, Mannequin 2 on yeah. the move. I don't, I, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't like kind of Goonies 12. You know, no, no or, Goonies 12 you, you know, for you. Animal House 23. I don't, no, I don't, I don't like you. those. But, you know, having gone through the process of making it, because we made a film of my novel, Midnight's Children, that, right. I, that I wrote the screenplay. And once you've gone through the, the thing that it takes to get a film made, which is, I mean, I had no idea how difficult it is to get a movie made, to get it out there. After that, you really admire anybody who got any film made. <laughs> you know? um, that, I mean, whatever it is, you know, Porky's Five, you know? <laughs> I think, well, you heard it here, yeah. Porky's Five, <laughs> as recommended by Sir Salman Rushdie. Salman Rushdie, everyone, the book is The Golden House. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market, who partners with farmers to help ensure no meat in store has added hormones or antibiotics. Because the words mystery and meat don't need to apply to this week's lunch. Whole Foods Market. We believe in real food. Our musical guest this hour has long performed with some of the best in the game, including Laura Gibson, Ray LaMontagne, and Death Cab for Cutie. But lately, he's stepping into the spotlight himself, having released his first solo album called Emotional Freedom Technique, which is not just something I need to learn. It's also awesome music. Please welcome Dave Depper to Livewire. Hey. What song are you going to play for us? I'm going to play a song called Never Worked So Hard. All right, this is Dave Depper here on Livewire. Uh. 
His new album is Emotional Freedom Technique. And if you want to find out more about his stuff, you can always go to his website, which is davedepper.com. That is going to do it for our show this week. A big thanks to Dave and all of our guests, including Salman Rushdie, Shadi Petoskey, and the very funny Joe Quazala. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel writes the show. Our house band is Sam Tucker, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Daniel Blake does our house sound and our recording and our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Our development director is Lauren Masterson. Laura Harden is our marketing director. And our operations manager is Tim Harkins. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we would like to thank member M. Burbach of Bothell, Washington, for their support. That's like almost the same last name that I have, but slightly different. Thanks, M. Burbach, for keeping this whole thing going. For more information about our show, how to listen to our podcast, or get our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. PRI Public Radio International. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a piping hot episode of Livewire delivered? right to your heart and ears each week. Well, guess what? That can happen when you subscribe to the Livewire podcast feed and you'll get the joy of surprising conversation every week. So go ahead and do it. It's super easy. You click on the button at the top of your podcast app and bam, you are Livewire subscribed. And if you're still, you know, feeling the love, if you're enjoying the show, hey, maybe you could hook us up and uh, leave us a quick review. That'll help more people find out about Livewire. And thank you.